Father, thank you that that you're not the sort of person who always keeps things to yourself. Lord, you like sharing. Lord, you want us to know what you're up to. Lord, Jesus said that he no longer called us servants but friends and said that the difference is that servants don't know what their masters are up to. And we thank you, Lord, that we have so much in the Bible that you've communicated about yourself. And Father, we pray that you'll just <clears throat> continue to reveal yourself to us through your word, that we will understand more and more about you. Father, send the Holy Spirit now to be our teacher. And Lord, that the truth that we hear will really make a difference to us. Because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right, if you turn to <coughs> Philippians and chapter 2. Is it coming up far enough? It's fine. Um, now we're of course on present salvation at the moment still present salvation or sanctification as the Bible calls it and the means whereby God sets us free from the power of sin in our lives now we'll read Philippians 2 starting at verse 7 this is the second of two studies on it we did the first one last time and uh, we'll just start by actually reading the verses uh, sorry Philippians 2 and verse 12 and 13 therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And at last time, what we were seeing in those verses is that here, Paul is not talking about being saved from the penalty of sin. You can't work that out for yourself. Paul is here talking about the part that we have to play in the ongoing process of being set free from the power of sin in our lives. And you'll remember that we went very quickly into the Greek last time. And we saw that he says to them to work out their own salvation. But the reason being, he says, for God is at work in you. And we saw that the Greek word for that means quite specifically to begin or to originate a work and we saw that Paul was saying now therefore because God has originated a work in you and is continuing to originate that work in you therefore because he has worked something into you therefore you must work that something out of you and we saw that the Greek word in verse 12 for work which was a different one completely meant in fact not to originate a work but to bring an already accomplished work into effect and of course I hope you remember the Greek words energio and katagazomai did everyone remember them? Nought out of ten, oh, I know Belinda did so what we're seeing here is that Paul is saying look God has worked in us and what God has worked into us is himself Jesus lives in us and that therefore we must cooperate with Jesus there are certain things we must do to enable him to reveal himself through us 
and to live through us. And so what we're doing is that we're looking at the various things that we need to do in order to come into an increasing experience of freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And you remember we saw that whereas past salvation or salvation from the penalty of sin is 100% the Lord, only the Lord could do that. Sanctification or present salvation we saw is 100% the Lord but 100% us as well. We have a definite part to play. There's nothing passive in this at all. And what I told you I was going to do was to look into what I thought were the two most important ongoing things that we must continually do. And you remember I was saying that these two things uh, would only bring benefit and blessing to us if we were doing both of them all the time together. And uh, I said that there were two keys, and I likened it to these films, when you get the mad general who breaks into the nuclear missile silo to hold the world to ransom. Now, of course, because of the power of the missiles, uh, security is such that no one man can fire them. In order to release the firing mechanism and to set the computer up for firing, there are two keys that you have. But these two keys must be inserted at the same time but the places where they go are too far apart for one man to do it. So therefore, both keys have got to be used at the same time in order for the desired results. Now, last time we looked at key number one, didn't we? 1 John 1 verse 9. We saw that if we are to be moving into increasing deliverance from the power of sin, then we must live in continuous confession of our sins. And we saw that that was key number one. Now tonight we're going to move on to the second key whereby we must work out our salvation. Now in order to see what it is, go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Because whereas last time we saw that key number one was confession of sin, we're going to see that key number two is in fact ongoing faith. Now remember, one key without the other is no good. It's both keys all the time. Psalm 106. Now what we've got here is that we've got a psalm which is looking back over God delivering Israel firstly through the Red Sea from Egypt and then looking back over Israel's history up until the wilderness wanderings, all right? Now we're going to look at two verses, okay? And we're going to see a contrast here. First of all, let's read verse 12. Remember, this is the psalmist quite simply looking back on the history of Israel from the crossing of the Red Sea up until the wilderness wanderings. Um, Let's start at verse 10. He saved them from the hand of the foe. This is talk, talking about the Red Sea. He delivered them from the power of the enemy, and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Now, here's, here's the verse. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. Now, that was the situation when Israel was brought across the Red Sea. They believed his words, they sang his praise. But of course, after the Red Sea came the wilderness wanderings. Now with that in mind, go to verse 24. And we read this. 
Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Now, can you see the contrast here? At the deliverance of the Red Sea, they believed his words and they sang his praise. At the Red Sea exodus, it was praise. But through the wilderness, it was constant grumbling. Can you see the two different reactions that these same people had at different times? So then, it's praise or it's grumbling. And of course, in Philippians 2 verse 14, Paul says, do all things without questioning and grumbling. Now, he's not, you know, he's not there saying you mustn't ever ask questions. He's talking about the kind of questioning whereby if you ask someone to do you a favour, all you get is, well, why me? Well, why isn't there? It's that sort of thing. There's always a grumble, always a moan. Now then, what we need to understand is that in our day-to-day -day lives, our ongoing <coughs> discipleship, the Lord is all the time putting us through various trials and testings and difficult situations in order to sanctify us, in order to bring us into deliverance from the power of sin in our lives. And I refer you back to the study we did some months ago through the wilderness when we saw how God dealt with Israel while they were going through that period of their lives. Now, as this happens to us, as we go through our wildernesses, as we experience the difficulties and the problems that the Lord takes us through, there are two reactions we can have. And they are the same reactions as we saw in Psalm 106. Firstly, you can have faith and you can sing. Or, you can not have faith and grumble. But when you're grumbling, you are despising the Lord's work. Let's read these verses one more time. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. Faith is demonstrated by praise. But verse 24, then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Now we can see here the two ways in which we can live day by day. We can live of those with we can live as people with faith who live in praise. Or we can live as people in unbelief and moan all the time. Can you see the contrast? Now, we're looking at what it means to work out our own salvation. We're seeing the things that we have to do in order for the potential that Jesus has of victory over sin for us. In things we have to do in order for that potential to be actually realised in our lives. And that one of them, we've seen that we must live in confession of sin, but tonight we're going to see that we must live in constantly maintained faith. And that if we don't, rather than grow in the Lord, we'll just be stagnant. We won't really get anywhere at all. So then, if we don't live in confession of sin, key number one, you won't grow as a Christian. But key number two, if you don't live in constant faith, you won't grow as a Christian either. So having dealt with confession of sin last time, we're seeing tonight that key number two is that we must maintain faith. But what we've got to, to now ask ourselves is, well, okay, fine, 
but we know the kind of problems that we go through. Therefore, how are we supposed to maintain faith? Because believe me, it isn't easy. So how do we maintain our faith? Well, in Romans 10.17, Paul says this, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So, we're going to answer the question, we know that we must live in faith, but what does this actually mean in a day-to-day -day way, alright? And we're going to get the answer from the Bible itself. Key number one was 1 John 1 verse 9. Now we can turn to key number two very specifically and find Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And let's read it. Because what we're going to see is the reason, the very reason why we can live in faith every day, no matter what happens. Now then, Romans 8, 28, let's read it. Paul says this, we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Let's do that again. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Now this is what Paul tells us. That for us as Christians... Everything is going to be used by God to our own good. Now, before we move on, I want to give you a literal translation of this verse, because sometimes the, uh, you know, the kind of our modern translations aren't that brilliant. Well, neither is the King James, actually. And it's always best to go back to the Greek. And I'll show you now what it literally says. And we know, with an absolute knowledge that for those who are loving God, and I want you to notice that's in the present tense, that for those who are loving God, all things are working together resulting in good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now what we're going to see is this. Because God is sanctifying us, we go through hard times, we go through problems. But when the problems come, things can often look dark. But what we've got to realise that in order to maintain faith, we have to realise that it is true, it is actually true, that dark though it may seem, it is actually a blessing in disguise. Because that very situation that's getting you down is going to become a means of great blessing to you. And therefore we have this promise. Now let's notice two things about it. First of all, in order for Romans 8.28 to be true for you, you've got to notice that it is a conditional promise, alright? Do you remember when we did key number one last time about confessing your sins? We saw that going, that being continually forgiven and cleansed of our sins is conditional upon confessing your sins. So if you don't confess them, you're not being cleansed from them. But if you do confess them, you are being cleansed. That promise is not a blanket promise. There's a condition that must be fulfilled. Now, in exactly the same way, there's a condition here. Because remember, in the Greek, it's those who are loving God. This doesn't apply to you automatically just, be, you know, just because you're saved, just because you're a Christian. This promise applies to us as long as we are loving God. As long as we are in ongoing fellowship with Him. Can you see that? This promise will be true of us 
as long as we remain in fellowship with God. And how do we do that? Key number one, constant confession of sin. Alright. So if we do, if we do live in that constant confession of sin, then automatically Romans 8.28 is fulfilled in our lives. But you have to realise this as well. If you're not in fellowship with the Lord in an ongoing way, then Romans 8.28 doesn't apply to you. And in fact, the exact opposite applies to you. Because as long as you're out of fellowship, far from everything working, working together for your good, everything is going to actually go against you. Because God is going to discipline you until such time as you repent of whatever it was that got you out of fellowship. And in fact, in a later study, we're going to see how that works and the whole process of God disciplining us when we get out of line and refuse to confess um, our sins. But, having said that, let's imagine that uh, you might have been out of fellowship with God for 20 years, alright? You're a Christian, but out of fellowship with God for the last 20 years, and the last tw everything is, you've been getting the exact opposite of Romans 8.28. Well, the point is, the moment you repent and get back in fellowship with God, then immediately, Romans 8.28 comes into play, and that last 20 years that seems such a waste will immediately turn into something glorious. Can you see the principle here? Romans 8.28 applies, but only when we are living in uh, constant confession of sins. So that's the first point. This promise is a conditional one. But the second thing I want to home in on is this. It says all things, all things will work together for our good. This is tremendously important to understand. Because in that phrase, all things, is including your sin, this is fantastic. If you're in fellowship with God, your sin will work together for your good. It includes your rebellion. If you're in fellowship with God, all your past rebellion will issue in blessing. And of course, because all things includes everything, it includes satanic attack as well. And whatever Satan conjures up against you, as long as you remain in fellowship with God, then that very attack which Satan did to destroy you is going to turn into a means for you to be even more blessed. So then, can you begin to see what Romans 8.28 is telling us? It is telling us that we never need to doubt and therefore grumble. Because the point is that if we're going through bad times, we may not be able to work out what God's doing. We might not have the foggiest how on earth it could ever work out for our good. But the point is the Bible says it will. And therefore, you will concentrate not on the black cloud, but on the silver lining around it. Can you see the point? There is no room for despair as long as you are <coughs> believing, Romans 8.28. But remember, believing something, belief, is an act of the will. It's got nothing to do with what you feel at all. It's an act of the will, and it's something that we must consciously do all the time. <coughs> we must maintain faith in the Lord, and therefore in His Word. Now, I want to give you two statements. And these statements underline what we're going to move on to see. The first one is this. The greatness of God is that he can bring good out of evil. The greatness of God is that he can bring good out of evil. Now, only God can do that. There is genuine, pure evil. That is a reality of life. But God 
can actually bring good out of pure evil. And the second thing is this, that when you are living in ongoing fellowship with him, then he doesn't just forgive any sins that you confess, he unmesses the mess that those sins cause. Can you see that? He doesn't just forgive the sin, he actually then unmesses the mess that that sin caused. Now, what I want us to do now is to go through the Bible and to have a look at various people and to see how this principle was working out in their own lives. If you go to Genesis 50, and first of all, we're going to have a look at Joseph. He's, he's one of my favourites. Now, let's just briefly in our minds go quickly over his story. God decided that Joseph was going to be the means to save uh, his family in a time of drought and famine that was going to come. So God had a plan for Joseph's life. All right. Now, years before that plan was actually fulfilled, as a young lad, God gave Joseph various <coughs> dreams and revealed to him what the future held. All right? So Joseph, if you like, he had a vision from God, he had a promise concerning his future, that he was in for great things, and it was absolutely true. Now then, what happened to him after that? Well, the first thing, as soon as he shares this vision, the very first thing that happens is that because of jealousy, all right, his brothers, uh, they decide first to murder him, but then change their minds, and they sell him off as a slave. Now, this doesn't, at first sight, seem to be the blessing that God has promised him, does it? So he's carried off now as a slave. However, uh, eventually he's sold to somebody, and because he loves the Lord and because he works well, he kind of works his way up in that household, and he becomes, he's a slave, but he's quite an important slave. But then, through no fault of his own, in any way at all, because the bloke who bought him had a wife who... Who, you know, who was not the sort of wife you want to have. She decided to seduce him. He wouldn't because, you know, he wouldn't go along with it because he loved the Lord. So she accuses him of raping, of trying to rape her. He's then thrown in jail where he rots for a few years. Now the point is this. Joseph has been called of God. He has a future. Yet what's happening is that no sooner has he sort of like received and believed the promise that God's given him, then Satan is let loose on him, attacking him again and again and again and again. And not only that, Satan seems to be winning, doesn't he? Joseph got more of the bad stuff, you might say, than he seemed to get of the blessing. And every time things seemed to look up, and he sort of came up a little bit, something else happened and he crashed down even lower than he was before. And he ends up in the dungeon. But you see, the point is this. He was going to be number two in Egypt. Pharaoh, who was number one, got to hear about him from someone who was in jail with him. Now, can you see the point is that Joseph, in following the Lord, was being attacked again and again and again by Satan. Satan was attacking through the unrepentant sin, as he always does, of those people around Joseph in his situation. And Satan is attacking because he doesn't want the ministry of Joseph to be fulfilled. But the point is this, through every attack, all the things that Satan is doing against uh, Joseph are the very means whereby God is manoeuvring Joseph into the situation where he is eventually going to get 
where God planned that he would be. So can you see this? That in the life of Joseph, although Satan kicked him again and again and again and did some really rotten stuff to him, the point is that each attack of Satan was simply God's next move to get Joseph to the next place he should be in in order for the eventual fulfilment of the vision that God had given to him. So can you see that Satan is just being totally outwitted by God because Romans 8.28 is working for Joseph. Terrible things happened to that guy and yet because he was a believer, because he loved the Lord, everything worked together for his own good. There's another example of this and, and it's the ultimate example in regards to Satan. It makes you wonder why he doesn't give up, alright? Because there was someone else that Satan wanted to dispose of even more than Joseph and of course it was Jesus. And, I mean, for 2,000 years, Satan had been trying to destroy Israel so that Jesus could never be born, alright? Well, eventually Jesus was born, Satan failed. The first thing Satan does is to attack through Herod, and all the children are killed, but Jesus escapes. Now, the next years of Jesus' life, up to when he started to preach, becomes one attempt after another by Satan to kill him, to get him out of the way. And Satan tries everything he could think of, and none of it worked. Time and time again in the Gospels you read that the crowds went to throw Jesus off a cliff or something like that, and yet it says that he slipped through their hands. It didn't matter what Satan did, he couldn't kill Jesus, no matter how hard he tried. Well, eventually he came up with his real ace ploy, all right? And he worked on it for years because he got just the right situation going, just the right tension in regards to the Roman authorities on the one hand and the Jewish authorities on the other. And Satan manoeuvred it very, very cleverly until the situation was just right for him to actually arrange to have Jesus crucified, which he does. <coughs> so after 33 years of trying to kill Jesus, now on the cross... Satan actually manages to do what he had tried so hard to do. He's won. He's succeeded. Or has he? No. Because the very moment that Satan actually arranged for Jesus to die, that moment when Jesus did die, crying out, it is finished, that was the very moment when Satan was defeated totally once and for all. And Satan spent 33 years building his own coffin. And when Jesus died on the cross, Satan banged the last nail in his own coffin. Can you see? <coughs> because obviously for Jesus as well, Romans 8.28 was working. Everything was working together for Jesus' good and therefore for the good of all those who would believe in him. Now let's go back to Joseph. We've seen that Joseph was one satanic attack after another. He was persecuted, he was hated, he was reviled, he was really treated badly. But eventually, his brothers discovered the truth. And they actually met up with him again, and there was Joseph in the very situation that he had predicted he would be. The vision he had <coughs> had been fulfilled in his life. And so there's a big family reunion, they all move up to Egypt, and therefore Israel is saved, you know, the whole family. But you see, eventually Jacob dies. And when Jacob dies, the brothers get a little bit sweaty. And they start to think, well, my goodness, we haven't been very good to Joseph, and Joseph is the second most powerful man in the then known world. And they wonder, or oh, I wonder, if he's just been good to us for Jacob's sake, you know, for Dad. Well, now that Dad's gone, they think, oh, goodness, you know, he might just, he, he might just have his revenge. So they concoct a lie 
And they go to Joseph and they lie to him by saying that Jacob has specifically told them to tell Joseph after he was dead that he wasn't to do anything against them. I mean, it was stupid because Joseph had forgiven them. He had no intention of revenge at all. But if you turn to verse 20 of Genesis 50, we read what he says to them, what Joseph said. Um, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. And they did, they hated him, they wanted to kill him. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Can you see? Romans 8.28, because Joseph was in ongoing fellowship with the Lord, even the evil that was concocted against him became the very means for his own personal ongoing blessing and the fulfilment of the ministry that God had called him to. So there you have it, Romans 8.28, in the life of Joseph. <clears throat> so for us, no matter what Satan does against you, Romans 8.28, it's all going to work together for your good. Let's have a look at King David, because King David is important. And this is especially important because this isn't in regards to Satan attacking. This is an example where God's people purely and simply fall into sin. Now, if you find 2 Samuel and chapter 12... you are aware, of course, of the episode in his life that we're going to look at. Because King David, leader of God's people, is one day walking around his palace and he sees his next-door neighbour's wife. He has only one desire. He wants to commit adultery with her. So, because he's the king and because there was no one to stop him, he probably does it. He commits adultery. I mean, we're talking filth here. And I'm so glad that God is honest I'm so glad that these other believers are shown for the people they really were. This, is just, this encourages me. They weren't super saints. They weren't half as holy as some of us like to try and make out we are sometimes. Can you see what I mean? That the reality of sinfulness is here portrayed, but also how the grace of God overcomes that very sinfulness. Now David ends up in a bad situation because Bathsheba then becomes pregnant. Now he is going to be found out. So what he does is her husband is away fighting a war. Her husband is a soldier. He brings him home, you know, obviously hoping that if he sleeps with her, then he'll just think it's his baby, all right? You know, this had to be done quick, and David does it quick. But because this guy is so committed to the Lord and to Israel, and because his fellow soldiers are out dying on the battlefield, he won't sleep in his own house. He sits outside all night refusing to make love to his wife when his soldiers, are, you know, when his uh, fellows are still fighting. So that doesn't work. David is really in trouble here. So <coughs> there's only one thing he can do. He arranges to have this guy murdered. And he has the commander of the army put this guy in a particular battle where it was quite clear that he would be killed. So David's lust and adultery has now turned to murder. All right. Now, in chapter 12, you read the story of when a prophet comes to David and the proclamation comes forward, you are that man. 
You see, because God knew what King David had done, all right? And the prophet comes to him and he says, I know that you've done this and you've got to repent. Now, David had acted in a terrible way. But remember, David was a man after God's own heart. And if a believer is someone after God's own heart, it doesn't mean that they will never sin. If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But it means that when they have sinned, they will be honest about it. And when confronted and convicted of this sin, David does not try to excuse himself. He does not try to justify himself. He does not try and get out of it. He admits that what he has done is terribly wrong. He repents. He confesses his sin to God. 1 John 1 verse 9. Now the child that Bathsheba is carrying dies. And that was a retribution from God against the situation. But there's something here that is really amazing. Because what happens is that David then goes ahead and marries Bathsheba. You see, after all, Bathsheba's husband is dead. Now, because of that, she was able to remarry. The question is, ought David to have married her? This is the thing. So what we want to do is we want to find out, did God bless that marriage? Or did God spurn that marriage? And what I'm going to show you is that even though that marriage should never have been, God blessed it in a wonderful, wonderful way. Uh, verse 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Now what that tells us is this. David had other wives. Now, one of David's sons was going to be the next in line leading up to Messiah. All right. Now the point is this. The one whom God chose to continue the messianic line after David was Solomon. Solomon was born to Bathsheba. Not to one of David's other wives. Solomon, the messianic line, continued not through King David and one of his other wives, but continued through King David and Bathsheba, the very wife he should never, ever have had. Can you see? Now, what are we seeing here? What David did with Bathsheba and then with her husband was totally wrong. It was pure evil. But the thing is this. David confessed it. He repented of it. And because he repented of it, it was gone. Bathsheba was now a free woman. She was not someone else's wife. And by this time David knew that he really did love her. So he married her. But not only that, God shows that his blessing was on it by continuing the messianic line through Bathsheba, through the birth of Solomon. <coughs> so what you've got here is that a marriage that should never, ever, ever have happened, a marriage that was born of sheer lust and evil and greed and murder, this marriage, but once all that sin had been confessed, the marriage that should never have been is then accepted and blessed by God. Romans 8.28 Now this applies in your life as well. The truth of the matter is this. God has a plan A for our lives. At every moment, God knows how he wants to lead, lead us, alright? But if you're like me, you get it wrong. Very wrong again and again and again. And that your life is a constant process of leaving plan A, isn't it? 
your life is a constant process of screwing up on plan A, alright? So then, the point is this. If you leave God's plan A, alright, confess it, Romans 8.28, God then implements plan B, but then turns plan B into plan A. And that plan B that you were moved into because of your sin now becomes as if from eternity that had been God's plan A. Can you see what I'm saying? It's everything works together for good. I'm on plan Z now. <laughs> and it's no problem. Because knowing that I'm on plan Z, I also know that I am exactly 100% in God's will. I'm still on plan A. Can you see how fantastic it is? Now take David's example and Bathsheba and apply that to Christians who for whatever reason have ended up in marriages that they should never have been in. Maybe they were divorced when they... Sh I mean, there is legitimate you know, legitimate occasions for divorce. But sometimes Christians end up having got, you know, they get divorced wrongly, they then end up remarried, and it's a marriage that should never have been. Or, for instance, uh, a believer marries an unbeliever, which is also wrong. So you can end up as a Christian in a marriage that you know was born of sin, it should never have happened. Well, the point is this. If your sin in the carrying that out is confessed, then that marriage becomes God's will for you. Can you see? And it will be as if God had always intended that you and they should have been man and wife, you see. This is tremendous. It's Romans 8, 28. If you turn now to Joshua, we'll see yet another example of this. Joshua chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at uh, the history of a place called Jericho. Now remember that Jericho, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, Jericho was the first city they had to beat up, alright? Now then, Joshua 6, verse 26, and we read this. Joshua laid an oath upon them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man that rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. Now here you have a clear declaration that God forbade anyone, Jericho has been destroyed, and God says that Jericho is never to exist again. I forbid you, I forbid anyone to rebuild Jericho. Alright, now that was God's declared intention. Now go to 1 Kings and chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 34. And this is talking about uh, during the time of King Ahab. In his day, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. So what we've got is this. God has declared quite clearly that he has forbidden anyone to rebuild Jericho. It is not God's will for Jericho to exist. It is not God's will for anyone to belong to Jericho. He wants it done with finished kaput. But here, someone decides to rebuild Jericho. They should never have done it. It was going totally against God's plan and God's will. But nevertheless, they did it. 
Now go over to 2 Kings and chapter 2 and we'll see a very interesting little episode in the life of the prophet Elisha. And in 2 Kings chapter 2 and we'll start from verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him over against them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground. And they said, Behold, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong bit, aren't I? Uh, oh, right, okay, yeah, start at verse 18, that's right. They came back to him while he tarried at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Now these are the people who live in rebuilt Jericho. It should never have been rebuilt, but it has been, and it's there, and there's nothing that can be done to change that. They say, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. See, the water has been poisoned. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And salt is forever a picture of the life of Jesus. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have made this water wholesome. Henceforth neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been wholesome to this day, according to the word which Elisha spoke. Now can you see, God said Jericho is never to be rebuilt. It wasn't his plan for Jericho to exist. But then someone goes and rebuilds Jericho. Now from the moment that someone does it, can you see, Jericho is there. Even God can't pretend it isn't. It's just there. If something happens, you can't pretend it hasn't. Reality is reality. You can't escape from it. But you see, the point is this. Even though God never wanted it to be rebuilt, it was rebuilt, and through Elisha, God decided to bless it. Because when the waters got poisoned and threatened the life of the city, God healed the water. Can you see Romans 8.28? The guy who rebuilt Jericho, God, God sorted him out, but everyone else who lived in Jericho, it wasn't their fault it was rebuilt. The sin had been dealt with through judgment on Heil, who built it. Therefore, Romans 8.28, can you see that? And now God blesses Jericho abundantly. And you see, what we're seeing here is simply this. Give him the slightest excuse and he'll bless you. This is what we're seeing of God. The slightest excuse and he will bless. All right. Now, can you see Romans 8.28? working in all these situations. Just one more, we've looked at Elisha, let's have a quick look at Elijah. In fact, you'll remember some years ago we actually did um, a series on him. But the bit that I want to home in on in regards to Elijah was that when he, he kind of prayed the drought onto Israel as a judgment, you see, and uh, he went to, to find King Ahab and, and said, look, you know, there's going to be neither dew nor rain except by my word, you see, and so his ministry begins. But as soon as he started his ministry, God says to him, hide yourself, all right? And after that leads him to a place uh, called Brook Cherith. Now, some people think that the reason that God told him to hide himself was to protect him from Ahab. Uh, I don't think that's true, because he was quite safe when he was standing in front of Ahab, and didn't need to be locked any, you know, away somewhere, so Ahab couldn't get to him. 
And the key to it lies in the fact that he was sent to Brook Cherith, all right? Because what we're going to see is that what God is saying to Elijah is you've got to hide yourself. He's saying, Elijah, you've begun your ministry, but you're too much in the way. You have got to be hidden. You must decrease so that I can increase. So off he goes to Brook Cherith. Now, Cherith means a trench. And it comes from the Hebrew verb, which means to cut. Uh, like, if you've got a railway cutting, then the train is running through a trench with the embankment on either side. So Cherith means a trench, alright. Now then, given that a trench is a place dug into the ground, and that's what Cherith means, what's one of the things that you use a Cherith for? Well, I'll tell you, it's a grave. You use it to bury people. Now this is why Elijah was sent to Brook Cherith. It was, it was, you know, his grave. It was so that he could die to himself, so that the Lord could then live through him. Well, what's interesting is that while he was there, God fed him via the ravens. Every morning and every evening, the ravens brought meat and bread to him. Now here we can see Elijah is being dealt with by God. He's being sanctified. He's being brought into death to self. And the realisation that his ministry is not going to be what he does, it's going to be what Jesus does through him. And during this period, the ravens feed him. Now according to the Mosaic law, ravens were unclean birds. The Jews could not use ravens for any sacrifice or religious ritual at all. They were unclean. And of course, uncleanness in nature under the Mosaic law represented sin and evil. Now, can you see that here is God dealing with Elijah to sanctify him, to bring him to the end of himself so that he can see that his life is in Jesus. During this time, the ravens bring in his food. The picture here that Elijah's own very sinfulness is becoming the means of blessing to him. Because the truth is this, the more aware you become of your sinfulness, the more aware you can then become of Jesus and his ability to save and deliver. Can you see that Romans 8.28 means that even your past sins will feed you and sustain you and nourish you if they are confessed and repented of because the Lord will use even them to do a work of grace in you. And I have found on many, many occasions that when I have been at my most rotten, I have found Jesus to be at his absolute best. And I've learnt things about Jesus as a result of my own sin that I would never have known if I hadn't committed those sins. Now, I'm not saying we should therefore go out and do it deliberately. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that Romans 8.28 says all things will work together for good, and that includes your sinfulness as well. We saw it did for King David, and he committed adultery and then murder. Now, can you see how marvellous this is for us? That there is never, ever any reason for us to get into despair, into depression, into condemnation, or anything like that at all. Because, I mean, let's picture, maybe, maybe you've done something dreadful. Maybe you have really let yourself down as a Christian. Well, you're in the right place, join the party. But maybe you're condemning yourself. 
Can you see, there's no need to. Because God isn't going to condemn you for that. If you confess it, he will actually use it to bless you. Can you see that there can be no despair? No feeling of, oh, I've really done it now. That mistake was so bad that I'll suffer with that for the rest of my life. No, you won't. Because if you confess whatever it was, the Lord will actually use it for your own good. Can you see that by believing Romans 8.28, because it is true, by realising it and believing it thoroughly, willfully, consciously, all the time, we are going to deliver ourselves from all the terrible, negative, black, dark feelings and forebodings that we get that Satan loves to give us. We're going to deliver ourselves from all that and we're going to find that we're going to live in praise even though things are not as good as we might like them to be. So can you see, if you moan and groan all the time and don't use key number two, you won't get anywhere, alright? You can grumble, you can not have faith in his promise, you can despise the pleasant land. But alternatively, if you believe his words, Romans 8.28, then you will sing his praise and you will grow. But the choice is forever up to us. But the point is, no matter what you're facing, it is not unreasonable in the slightest to be encouraged in even the blackest and darkest situation. And the reason is not because we commit intellectual suicide. Faith isn't blind. The reason that it is perfectly logical to be rejoicing in black times is because God has declared his intent that even the blackest time is going to actually issue in your blessing. Therefore, there is every reason to praise the Lord. There is every reason to stay in faith. There is no reason whatsoever to be negative and grumbly and moany or anything like that at all. Go to Romans chapter 4. And just a little snippet about Moses. And I love this. Romans 4. Verse 20, remember we're looking at work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. What we must do to grow in the Lord. Romans 4.20, listen to this. This is talking about Abraham. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Can you see that? Praise and you will grow strong. But don't praise don't believe and you will grow weak. Can you see Moses understood Romans 8.28, therefore he grew. No matter what he went through, and he went through some pretty bad things himself, but he kept growing in the Lord the whole time. So then, the two keys to working out our salvation. Continuous, consistent confession of our sins. And praising the Lord through faith in his word because absolutely everything is going to work out just fine 1 John 1 verse 9 Romans 8 28 recite them in the morning before you go to work or whatever but get them into your heads if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he is working all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. You turn those two keys together and you will release maturity 
into your Christian life. And I'm just going to end up with one of my favourite stories that someone told me. I love this. And I love it because it's the perfect example of both these keys working together. And remember, the only reason that the two keys are needed is because we keep screwing everything up because we're sinners. This is why God is gracious to us. He knows that, that we all the time are mucking it up and clowning it up. Hence, the two keys we have. And it was great, this story. It was about this guy who got converted, right? He became a Christian. And for years, he had been really buddy-buddy with one other bloke. They were real close pals, all right? The real lads together. And he got converted, but he knew that he had to tell his friend. But he was dreading it. And the reason that he was dreading it is because he had a bit of a temper. And his mate knew exactly how to wind him up. And what he was frightened of was that if he told his mate that he got converted, that he reckoned within 10 minutes, his mate would kind of laugh and, and would know exactly how to get him to lose his temper and then laugh at him. Or, oh, you call yourself a Christian. And he was really worried about that. But he knew he had to, you know, and the Lord just convicted him to go and do it. So he did. He said, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you that you control my temper and that I am a good witness and that this bloke, you know, and that he sees that I'm different now. So he went along, all right, knocked on the door in, they went, cup of coffee and that, and he says, I'm a Christian now, I've been converted. Anyway, it took his friend about 90 seconds <laughs> to wind him up so much and laugh at him that he ended up swearing at him and storming out. And, and so the thing he feared most had happened. He went along to tell his mate about Jesus and he ended up swearing at him and storming out, slamming the door behind him. The whole thing went disastrously wrong. Anyway, when he got home, he calmed down a bit and he was praying about it. He said, oh Lord, I'm sorry, I've really, really done that, really mucked this one up, haven't I? He'll, he'll never become a Christian now. And the Lord convicted him that because he'd sworn at him and been so rude to him, he had to go and say sorry, you see. <laughs> oh no, you know. Anyway, so back he goes, cap in hand, he knocks on the door, and his mate opens the door and he apologised. He said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for swear, I'm sorry that I lost my temper. And his friend looked at him and he says, you are different. And he became a Christian there and then. <laughs> because he knew that this guy would never have apologised about anything unless something really drastic had happened to his life. So can you see there is both these principles, 1 John 1, 9, Romans 8, 28, working together. Everything is going to work together for our good. So use the keys and like that we will keep growing in the Lord. Praise God.